0: Welcome to The Animal Guide for Curious Humans, the podcast that explores the vast world of non-human animals and our relationship to them. I'm your host, Maureen Armstrong. For more information, please visit us at theanimalguide.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. If you follow the news regularly, amongst the craziness of war, politics, and economic distress, there seem to be a growing number of reports about whales and dolphins. Some stories are disheartening, like the report of almost 500 pilot whales who were found dead after being beached on an island in New Zealand. But there are also many inspiring reports about marine mammals, like the group of dolphins who protected swimmers in New Zealand from a great white shark or reports of humpback whales saving seals and other mammals from orcas. Cetaceans, the order of marine mammals that includes whales, dolphins, and porpoises, are intelligent, complex beings with language, culture, and social skills. We know a great deal about cetaceans thanks to the remarkable work of scientists around the world in several fields, including neuroscience, marine biology, and psychology. Cetaceans have been studied in their natural habitat and in captivity. As a result, we've been able to document the adverse consequences cetaceans experience in captivity. And why are they held captive? For the most part, it's simply for human entertainment. Our guest today is world-renowned neuroscientist Dr. Lori Marino. Laurie is an expert in animal behavior and intelligence, particularly with respect to marine mammals held in captivity. She's the president and co-founder of the Whale Sanctuary Project, a science-based nonprofit organization working to end the exploitation of whales and dolphins and creating sanctuaries for those who have been held in captivity. The Whale Sanctuary Project is currently preparing a sanctuary site in Port Hilford, Nova Scotia. Lori has appeared in several films and television programs, including the 2013 documentary, Blackfish, about killer whale captivity, Unlocking the Cage, the 2016 documentary on the non-human rights project, and Long Gone Wild, the 2019 documentary that picks up where Blackfish left off. Lori will explain the psychological, physical, and mental harms experienced by cetaceans in captivity. And she will talk about the work of the Whale Sanctuary Project to create sanctuaries for captive cetaceans so they can be released from the harmful environments they're in now. Just before we get started with the interview with Lori, a quick note about the sound. There are a few instances where the recording warbles a bit. And my apologies for that. As we know, technology doesn't always work perfectly. You should still be able to make out the information Lori is conveying without any difficulty. So here we go with Lori Marino of the Whale Sanctuary Project. So listen, Lori, it is so wonderful to have you uh, on the show. I'm, I'm super excited to hear all about you and your work and uh, the work of the um, the whale. Um, Sanctuary Project. Let's start with maybe a little bit about yourself and how you uh, personally became interested in marine mammals.
1: Well, thanks for having me on the show, Maureen. Uh, I became interested in marine mammals in a roundabout way. Uh, When I was in graduate school, I was interested in uh, animal species who had large complex brains. And I happened to see a picture of a dolphin brain in a book in the library. And I said, wow, that is quite a brain. I could study that for quite a long time. And so I was hooked into studying dolphins and whales by their brains more than anything else.
0: Fascinating.
1: I was was studying neuroscience. So a big complex brain was a real attraction for me.
0: Right, right, so you and of course, you are much of your research, as I understand it is on is on the category of animals which are cetaceans, which are um mostly whales, dolphins, and porpoises. There are likely other species in there as well um, but can you tell us a little bit about um each of at least those three animals um Kind of uh, because there were many subspecies, I think, for or at least some of them. Uh, but what's what's their life like? How do, how what's their normal lifespan? Where do we where do they live? What are their social structures like?
1: You're absolutely right that there's a wide variety, a wide range of species of dolphins and whales and porpoises. There's actually sixty-seven to seventy-seven different species of. Toothed whales and dolphins and porpoises, and about wow. eleven species of mysticetes, the big rorqual whales with the baleen. Okay. I've mainly studied the brains and the behavior of bottlenose dolphins, beluga whales, and orcas, otherwise known as killer whales, okay. and a few other species. Um, and uh, although there are differences across species, there are things about all of these that are very cetacean. Uh, cetaceans, as you mentioned, dolphins, whales, and porpoises, all have very large brains. Okay, Their brains are usually larger than you would expect for their body size. And their brains uh, have certain characteristics that they all share. Uh, one of those is the fact that their neocortex, the gray matter of the mm-hmm. brain, the outer covering, is really wrinkled and in many species like orchids, those wrinkles are even greater than in the human brain. And what that tells us is that over time, as they evolved over millions of years, their brain has had to pack a lot of, inf- a lot of tissue into their cranium. Uh, so this is, we call this uh, a group of animals who are highly encephalized because they have Really big brains for their body. And their brains show features of uh, real elaboration very much uh, in the same way that human brains do, but different kinds of features. And they are mostly, not all, but mostly incredibly social. Their family is the most important thing to them. Their social relations are the most important thing to them. Most of them like to dive deep, swim vast distances, and many of them are cultural. And that's something that is surprising to some people, but dolphins and whales have different cultures, and that's something that we now know uh, from years and years of field studies of orcas and beluga whales and all different types of cetaceans.
0: Can you give us an example of that? What are some of the uh, cultural differences that uh, you've been able, the the scientific community has been able to to unveil of these animals?
1: Sure. Um, In terms of orcas, for instance, killer whales, um, they are all one species, but they represent different cultures and communities. In the Pacific Northwest, there is a community of orcas known as the Southern Residents and they are a group of about 73 orcas consisting of three pods and they are called Southern Residents because they reside mainly in the area of the of the uh Pacific uh the Washington area in the Salish Sea um near the San Juan Islands and they have a specific dialect that's different from other Orcas. They have a specific diet that's different. And they also have specific social uh, practices that are very different from other Orcas. There is another community of Orcas in that same area called the transients. And the transients and the Southern residents never mix. They don't reproduce, they have different dialogues, dialects, different uh, diets, different ways of life. So that's an example of two communities of orcas that are really actually two cultures, two orca cultures, sometimes sharing the same space, but differentiated by their cultural traditions, just like in humans.
0: Wow, love it! Um, I wonder if uh, I think it's Talequa, as I would know her. I think J thirty five, as some describe her, the the orca who uh, whose a, a calf died a few years ago, and she had carried, continued to carry the calf around for a, a couple of weeks or so. Was is she, was she a member of one of those two that you just described?
1: Talequa is a southern resident orca. And okay. she carried her dead infant for seventeen days. and um it the I mean, the world got to see what these animals are like, who they are, how mm-hmm. strong their emotional bonds are mm-hmm. and and how far that goes. So yes, Taliqua is a member of the Southern residence,
0: yeah, incredible. you're right. It was an incredible story, and it was a great. Uh, image as painful it was to watch her. Uh, I think it landed with so many people who perhaps don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, um, orcas or or other cetaceans. But but there was just a common bond of grief that we as humans had with with her.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, there was no explanation needed. Here's a mother grieving her deceased child. Yeah. And that's happened many times in the animal, the non-human world, among other kinds of cetaceans, among uh, you know elephants, uh, primates. Everyone understands what it's like to be a mother and to love one's child.
0: Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So um, speaking specifically, I mean, you've talked about uh, cetaceans as being very, very bright, the high high level of intelligence. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What do we know about the intelligence of uh, these creatures?
1: We know a lot about the intelligence of a handful of them because we haven't studied all of them extensively. Some of the work that has been done with captive dolphins and whales has revealed Uh, that they are very, very uh, good problem solvers. They have excellent memories. They are very adept at picking up a human-based symbolic language. Um, About 20 years ago, uh, I co-authored a study that showed that bottlenose dolphins can recognize themselves in mirrors. So Mm -hmm. they... All of the the sort of high level cognitive tasks that we have given them uh, in captivity, uh, they have sort of aced. <laughs> they have really uh, risen to the risen to the to the top. Um, they're they're just exceptionally bright that way. Now, um, that's not an endorsement of keeping them in captivity, but some of the work that has been done in captivity requires that level of control uh, in terms of an experimental control. So that's how we were able to know so much about them on that level. However, the other side of things is that we now know how, know how bright they are because of the field studies uh, of what they do when they are in their natural setting. Right. Um, all of this about the culture and the dialogue, the dialects, communication, all of that. That work um, is only really done in the field where you can really get a sense of what they do, how complicated their natural communication systems are, how complicated their social system is, their dialects, their traditions. Um, And that's really where the cutting edge is today in terms of cetacean cognition, and intelligence.
0: Right. Which makes sense. And as it should be, because, you know, we want to see the end of of, of a captivity for cetaceans to the extent possible. There will always be situations where they may be injured or something where they yeah. they require special treatment. But, uh, you know, obviously, most of them that um, uh, find themselves captured from the wild Um, it's, it seems to be for entertainment purposes. It's, um, you know, they're confined because, um, people want to have a swim with the dolphins event, or they want to go to an aquarium and see them perform. Um, so they're removed from their natural habitat and their, their, their families in the wild and put into, uh, uh, put into these kinds of situations. Um, can you talk a little bit about the physical and psychological impacts on them, um, from being confined, um, size of, uh, of confinement's gotta be a huge issue, but they're also being forced to perform. There's, I, I'm guessing significant, both physical and psychological impacts on that.
1: Yeah, we've, we've, over the past uh, few years, I, I've, I've been doing a lot of, uh, work on on uh, the impacts of captivity on various species and in particular orcas. Mm -hmm. But the same is true uh, to lesser and greater extents in different species. But for instance, orcas are very large. They are kept in entertainment parks and concrete tanks, and they do the worst
0: of Mm -hmm. all
1: of the those kept uh, for entertainment. Um, it's because of their body size. It's because of their need to really swim far distances. But it's also because of their intelligence and their need to be socially embedded in a group. Um, and these animals have nothing in tanks that resembles a natural life. Uh, they don't have the physical space and they don't have the the, the social, cultural uh, support. Um, and they are also not allowed to exercise something very important to them, which is their autonomy, their choice. Sure. Mm-hmm. So when you have a brain like that. Um, you need a lot of stimulation. You need to be challenged. You need to be dealing with a complex environment and problem solving. And none of that, none of that is available in a concrete tank. And because of that, we have a lot of evidence now that um, the result is a lot of uh, physical and mental diseases that are due to the effects of chronic stress.
0: It, it Directly related to chronic stress. It, it, yeah,
1: I mean, opportunistic infections, for instance, that you would, why would you see them in, in a filtered water in the tank? You know, they're not out in the ocean where there are pollutants, but you see them dying of of uh, systemic infections like pneumonia and candidiasis and, and all kinds of things. And then you see the behavioral issues, the stereotypies, the repetitive nonsensical behaviors, You know, even some of them being really um, self-harming. Uh, orcas, for instance, most of them in captivity, they grate their teeth down to the gums and they have uh, they, they don't have teeth anymore. The dentition is really damaged. And they do that because that's, that's a, uh, an indication of, uh, of trying to cope with stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that when we see disrupted social relations, disruptive relations between mothers and calves, the inability of mothers to bond with their calves. So their whole lives are disrupted on both the physical, mental, and social level. It just doesn't work for them. And we see pretty much the same thing in beluga whales and in bottlenose dolphins, uh, the same thing, although to a lesser degree, but no cetaceans can thrive in a concrete tank that's just not the nature of who they are.
0: hey hope you're enjoying this episode you know i'm often asked what other podcasts i listen to and people ask me for recommendations as it turns out word of mouth is the principal way that people hear about podcasts so if you're looking for ideas for other podcasts to subscribe to i would suggest the freakonomics radio group of podcasts the main show Is hosted by Stephen Dubner, one of the co authors of the runaway best selling book Freakonomics The Hidden Side of Everything. And it is just called Freakonomics Radio. It covers every topic imaginable, from public transit to the future of colleges, with superb guests and lots of data and an economic lens. There are also several spin-off podcasts, including one by Dubner's co-author of Freakonomics, Stephen Levitt. Levitt's podcast is called People I Mostly Admire, in which he interviews people of interest from many walks of life. He recently interviewed well-known philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer, who authored Animal Liberation. As of the time of this recording, he just dropped his latest episode, which is an interview with Dr. Jane Goodall, one of the world's preeminent voices in animal welfare, and herself the host of a podcast called Hopecast. I can't wait to listen to that interview with Dr. Goodall. All of the podcasts in the economics family are excellent. They include a limited edition series called Off Leash, hosted by dog cognition expert Dr. Alexandra Horowitz. If you haven't already done so, check them out. I hope you will continue to recommend this podcast, The Animal Guide for Curious Humans, to others and to share it with your networks so we can continue to grow our audience. Okay, now back to the show. It it does seem, on an up note, that there is some growing... Uh, interest globally, people are becoming uh, um, less interested in um, these, and particularly the entertainment environments that are holding cetaceans in captivity. And of course, as a Canadian, I'm, I, I am proud to see that my country is, um, you know, taking a bit of a leadership role in passing legislation back in 2019 to end the captivity of of cetaceans. Sadly, it doesn't, you know, those that are already in captivity are are for the most part grandfathered into that legislation. But I think there's still quite a call for these sorts of entertainment environments. They're, they're, they're just not what people uh, want to go to any longer. I think the world is beginning to appreciate, um, you know, the, the 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 cruelty and the brutality, really, that um, that results from them. So, um, but as a result, then, obviously, if we're able to release some of these um, the, these beautiful animals out of captivity they need a place to go. You can't just be plopped back into the ocean and expected to survive if they've been many, many years in a, in, in, in captivity. And this is of course where uh, the whale sanctuary project really comes in. Um, can you tell us about, you know, how the whale sanctuary project got started? What's your, your mission and vision and tell us a little bit about the team members, because it's uh it definitely takes a team to do this extraordinary work that you folks are doing.
1: Thank you. And and yes, you're absolutely right that uh, most of the dolphins and whales in the tanks now have been born into the tanks, and they have no experiences to draw on to survive in the open ocean. So really, the only alternative is sanctuary. Uh, There's no alternative for uh, those who are currently in tanks. And and it's it's also a concrete way to 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 I mean it's one thing to say well I don't like them living in the tanks look how terribly they do, but you also have to provide a solution or an alternative, and sanctuaries are that alternative they're a concrete alternative, um, and I started I started the the whale well sanctuary project back in 2015 actually. Um, just getting together with some friends and colleagues uh, because I knew that that this was the next step, and everyone knew it. And by 2016, we had incorporated and we became a nonprofit. And shortly after that, uh, we brought on Charles Vinick as our executive director. And Charles is well known for his uh, role as the manager of the Keiko Project, mm. and Everyone knows about the free Willie yep. whale. Yep. Well, the real one was taken to Iceland and spent five years living in his natal waters, enjoying his life. And a lot of the people on that team are on our team at the Whale Sanctuary Project. So we have Charles Vinnick. We have Jeff Foster, who is known as the whale whisperer. Um, He knows how to do transfers and rehabilitations and just has tremendous experience on the ground or in the water, if you will, (laughs) with dolphins and whales. Um, We have Naomi Rose, uh, who's with the Animal Welfare Institute. We just have, uh, when we have over 50 advisors internationally, um, veterinarians, marine mammal experts, uh, legal experts, uh, just... A, a range of people with expertise because it takes um, a, a, a great deal of a, a big team to do something like this. This is something new. Um, and if we we're going to do this, we want to do it right. And it takes, it does take a team, a big team to do this. We, after two years of looking, searching for a, the proper site, we found a beautiful bay in Nova Scotia in right. Port Hilford. And in addition to the, the bay itself being so beautiful and so physically perfect, the people in the town there, in the town of Sherbrooke, embraced our project. And um, now we are working with them to create the sanctuary. They are very much a part of this project. And what I learned uh, was that, you know, uh, again, it takes a team, but it also takes a community that it embraces the project and wants to have that project there, wants whales there in their backyard. Um, And that made a tremendous difference for us in our search for a site.
0: Oh, I can imagine. And uh, I'm not surprised to hear that the great folk in Nova Scotia have really embraced the project. Uh, There's wonderful people out out east. So what makes for a good site? How do you evaluate... um, uh, what you're going to be able to um, uh, manage in terms of the number of residents you think that will be there and such? How do you, how do you determine a good site? Well, it, it, the, the
1: appropriateness of a site is determined by many things. First and foremost, the species that you want to keep. So we are interested in uh, having beluga whales and orcas as residents. And so we chose a site that had the right temperature range, the right depth um, that, that could accommodate these species. Um, Our site is a hundred acres of water space. And that is orders of magnitude larger than the largest tank in the world. We wish we could even give more. Um, But that, There are, you know, certain ways that a site has to be configured, that the net has to be configured. And those, the hundred acres that we have um, basically uh, allow us to do what we want to do. They just had a hurricane up there uh, at Fiona, I think it was. And, you know, we had people on the ground during the hurricane just to see what happens to the site when there's a big hurricane. And actually... way our site is situated, it's very well protected from the winds. And that's very important too. And then, of course, you want to find a site that's pristine, that doesn't have any pollution, that is not going to be impacted by something nearby that might be uh, unhealthy for the whales and vice versa. So we want to be good stewards of the of the area. And so we decided based upon uh, something called the carrying capacity of that area that we could probably have 8 to 10 beluga whales and 2 to 3 orcas without exceeding it. So given how that water flushes, the depth, the temperature, everything about it, keeping that area clean, flushed clean uh, from concentration of, of feces and so forth, Um, That's how we arrived at the number of animals. Could be a little bit more, but probably not much more. So it's a combination. What do our residents need and how can we be good stewards of the environment that we are using to give them home?
0: Yeah. So, and I've seen some uh, photos of the site uh, on the Whale Sanctuary Project uh, website, and it looks absolutely stunning. So, it would be netted in order to ensure that they were secure in the bay. Um, and didn't, uh, didn't get out into full open water, which uh, on the basis that in, given the life that they've had, the chances of them be successfully surviving out, uh, totally in the wild is, is, is a little limited, but it also then protects them from either boats or other, uh, other, uh, marine mammals coming into the space. Right
1: does. I mean, it's, it's a 24-7 job where we'll have security. We will have observers there all the time. We will have uh, hydrophones in the water, video cameras, so that we know what's going on 24-7, 365. Um, and it's also a good opportunity to also educate people about what whales do when they're in a natural environment, or at least a more natural one, and they're given the opportunity to spend their day the way they want, um, instead of tricks, you know, and, and we will maintain, you know, certain behaviors, like we will feed them, and we will have veterinary care, because that's our obligation as caregivers um, to do that. But everything else, we will try. You know, we'll, we'll try to promote that they get a chance to spend their day the way they want, exploring the environment. The net will allow fish and other animals to come through. They can play with them. They have a natural bottom. Uh, it's if they're in the ocean. Literally, they'll feel the tides, um, and we'll try to give back to them as much as we can. Of, of what they, they really need to
0: thrive. Yeah, I think this is so exciting. I'm just really, really thrilled that you're doing this and to see how it progresses. One major question I have is how on earth does one transport orcas and belugas from one place to the next. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? And, um, and specifically, I know you've got some residents that you've already identified you believe will be coming to the uh, sanctuary as soon as it's open. Um, uh, can you tell us a bit about the, those folks?
1: Yes. Well, we get asked about the transportation part of it often because it seems nearly impossible to get a whale from one place to another, especially if it's halfway across the world. Right, uh, But but actually, that's done all the time. Uh, commercial facilities transfer whales and dolphins back and forth all the time. That's really not the hardest part, of this, even though it might seem that way. But generally... You, you, first of all, have to know everything you need to know about that individual before they become a candidate to come to the sanctuary. You want to know that they're healthy, that they're resilient. And then you spend time training them to do the things that they need to do so that that transfer is not as stressful as it could be. Things like swimming into a sling and then being hoisted up and put on a plane and uh, then when they get to the sanctuary, being in quarantine for a while, and and uh, it's very complex, but we have the protocol for that. And we know how to do that, um, and that's done by professionals and people who have experience doing this successfully. Uh, so so it really is a that's a very doable part. Now we've been talking with uh, some. Uh, facilities in South Korea uh, and a few other places. We have not decided yet who's coming to the sanctuary. But when you consider that, for instance, if there if beluga whales were to come from South Korea to Port Hilford, Nova Scotia, that's quite a journey. Mm-hmm. And we would plan that out step by step by step and know Part of it would be left to chance and there would be contingency uh, plans all the way through and everything would be mapped out with with contingencies and contingencies upon contingencies and and um, to make this as safe and as stressless for the animals as we can.
0: Yeah, Good on you. Well, you, I can only imagine then um, uh, to run a three, 365, 24-hour-a-day operation, monitoring, feeding, uh, cleaning, ex, uh, veterinary care, this initiative must be very expensive and it's, you know, it's high skilled uh, folks who are involved in this. What kind of cost do you think it's going to take to run the sanctuary on an annual basis?
1: On an annual basis, probably a couple of million a year. Our capital costs are around 15 million and we're well on the way to achieving that goal. We're still uh, looking for uh, more capital uh, support. Mm-hmm. But, um, but one and a half to two million a year, I think, would be a good estimate of the maintenance costs. Um, this means a veterinary facility on site, veterinarians and veterinary technicians, trainers, people taking data on the behavior of the residents, people cleaning the nets. Um, you know, there's like I said. I mean, it does take a whole host of skills. So um, that would be it's a it's a team. It's a team effort. We need security. Um, and then on the and then the other side, there's there's you know people who can uh, work with uh, veterinary students who may come to the facility and want to work with our whales to learn veterinary procedures. Uh, we won't do any invasive procedures that are unnecessary, but it is a good place for veterinary students to uh, learn how to be marine mammal vets. And it's really the only alternative to going to a place like SeaWorld and learning the trade. So um, there are a lot of outreach and educational, academic type of of uh advantages that come out of having a facility like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And hopefully, no doubt, it will attract researchers as well who, who would like to come and do some some research uh, once you've got residents settled in.
1: Yes. And actually, we will be uh, doing research from the very beginning, even before they even come to the sanctuary, because we want to observe and record their behavior before, during the transport, and then afterwards, um, as to make sure that they are coping with and adapting to the new environment, to understanding, you know, how their behaviors changed. Are there any abnormal behaviors that have decreased in frequency? So there will be a ton of observational data coming out of this, as well as health data. And one of the things I'm really excited about is the fact that. We can also do, uh we can also study their communication system. How does their communications change from going mm. from a tank to a natural environment? I mean, that's never been done and we'll be able to figure that out. So anything that's non-invasive, non-intrusive, that does not involve uh, intruding on their time um, and, you know, would be permissible as science Mm -hmm. in our sanctuary and i think also that would be very helpful for people working in the field who need to study these animals in the wild but need to find non-invasive non intrusive ways to do that right Um, so we for learning about those science, those innovative scientific methods.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um just getting back to the money question again. Is the project totally funded through donations? Do you have access to grants from um, any nations or or globally?
1: Right now we are all donations and uh from philanthropists uh you know everyone who's just wants to send in a little bit of money every month to larger donors. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll probably, uh, and we do have grants from philanthropic foundations who are interested in in animals. Um, Probably down the road, uh, we would apply for some government grants, but those wouldn't be to build the sanctuary. It would be for things like, you know, an educational program or an outreach program or something like that, or building an interpretive center somewhere and those kinds of things. But as far as relying upon government funding, we're not doing that. It's all philanthropy.
0: Amazing. So uh, the listeners, in addition to maybe giving a donation if they can to assist with this great project, What other types of things might we be able to do to to help the work of the Whale Sanctuary Project?
1: Well, thank you. Uh, I think, you know, right now, um, we just need people to tell more people about what we're doing, to look, go to our website, take a look at this incredible team of people um, and what we're doing, how we are involved in, a lot of different things, uh, including make, creating the sanctuary, but we also have a whale aid program where we work to help uh, other whales um, who are in captivity. Um, right now, we are working with uh, the Miami Sequarium to help uh, the Lolita, the Orca. We plates in... Uh, Took, took part in um, the Russian whale jail situation where we were able to help with the release of 97 orcas and beluga whales into the wild who were captured uh, in Russia. Wow. Um, so we also do um, a lot of educate public outreach and education, but um, go to our website, take a look at, at what we do. Um, Feel free to contact us if you have any questions um, or if you feel like you have a special skill and you want to be involved in some way, um, we would love to hear from you.
0: Listen, Laurie, thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule um, to come on the show and to share all of that valuable information about the project. Um, this is such exciting work, and I am thrilled for the residents, whoever they ultimately are, um, to come uh, to the sanctuary. Now, you are I think it's tw- sometime in 2023, you're hoping it will open? We are hoping
1: For the end of 2023, more likely it will go into 2024. uh, The level of permitting needed for a project like this is is unbelievable. Um, We are doing all kinds of tests and tests to do tests and permits to get permits. And we are just pulling out all the stops. And and that's required by law. I mean, you can't do something like this unless you... um, do what is needed to get the governmental permits to do it. So that's what we're engaged in. We're well on our way.
0: Good show. Well, good luck with all of that. I know it's an awful lot of paperwork to make its way through, but um, it's going to be an extraordinary, extraordinary facility. And I'm so pleased to hear about it. I can't wait to visit it once it's open and uh, wish you and that, as you say, that extraordinary team. Um, uh, you've just got a list reading the bios of the folks associated with the project is, is, is just amazing. So I wish you all the best of luck and uh, look forward to hearing uh, how, how things go as time goes on. Thank you so much. And thank you to your listeners. Thank you. You take care. Thanks again to Lori, and thanks so much to you listeners for joining us today. Please do check out the whalesanctuaryproject.org for all the details about that organization. And as Lori suggested, can you help spread the word about the work of the project? This is a really good news story. Don't we all need more of those these days? Thanks to McGill Foote for podcast production and website support. For more information about the show, please visit us at www.theanimalguide.com or send us an email at infotheanimalguide.com. As always, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you use to listen. Until next time, all the best to you and the animals in your life.